I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, using your own Bible or the church pew Bible in front of you, because you'll find that the scripture reading is no longer in the bulletin. Some sense of returning back to normal, and we'll talk about that today. If you're using the church Bible, it can be found on page 857. We're going to be reading, and maybe one of the reasons why it's not in there, it's a rather long passage. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 to 38. Again, this can be found on page 857 of your church Bible. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, that is Jesus, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years, when she was a virgin. And then was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. The Bible, from beginning to end, presents some very basic realities of the human condition. And I want to focus on two at the beginning here to remind us, although many more could be given to help us understand this text that we have just read. The first basic reality, one of the underlying themes of scripture, is that all men, women, and children are created in God's image. And as such, we were created to be relational beings. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past, before there was anything else, had this relationship in the Godhead. And when creation happened, he shares that relational aspect with his creatures. We were wired to interact with each other, with our surroundings, and most importantly as humans, with the triune God. Even our presence here today, whether in person or on live stream, reveals our desire to be in a community, in this case, of believers. It's a fact of human existence that even non-Christians would agree on. The second basic reality is this, that all men, women, and children were created as worshipers. The Bible never argues if we will worship. It's assumed. The question is always, what will we as humans worship? 
Who is most valuable in our life? What is most important? What have we set our eyes upon that we are pursuing? The question is always, will we pursue the one true God of the Bible or will we run to something else far inferior? I mention these because we are currently in a period of history when these two basic realities that maybe perhaps in the past were lying somewhere in the distant background of our life have been brought to the fore of our daily existence and life and pursuits every day. I would like to show, though, all how these also are intricately tied to this passage in Luke chapter 2. How there are similar parallels to what we are facing today, not identical, but many. How God will use his purposes in Luke chapter 2. You know, the fact that we are worshipers, not if we will worship, but whom or what we will worship, has been displayed since the opening pages of the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve rejected God for a life and for worship far inferior, resulting in alienation from God, the separation of relationship, and broken relationships with other human beings and indeed the world around us. I would suggest that in our present time, with all these realities and events in the past year and life in 2021, individually we have been challenged, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, to find value, meaning, and purpose. In these difficult times, what are we valuing? What are we pursuing? Ultimately, what are we worshiping? While this relationship with God, this vertical relationship, is fundamental to Christianity, What has also been challenged are our horizontal relationships. And I would say this has become much more pronounced in this period of separation, isolation, lockdowns, and broken relationships magnified by our relationship with God and fellow human beings. I think it's safe to say that there has been profound strains on your relationships these past 18 months. And if there's not, maybe we can talk afterwards and I'll write a book with you and we'll make millions. Perhaps even today, here in this room or watching on live stream, some of us could give testimony to the struggles that we have had. Feeling of being alone, isolated, or even abandoned during the last year and a half. Perhaps everyday struggles have been small. Perhaps they have been tragic with the passing and death of a loved one or friend. Perhaps this is exemplified in your relationships at home your relationships at work, at school, yes, at church, or with neighbors. So much so that maybe you're wondering if this whole Christianity thing, this relationship stuff, is worth it. Well, this text before us from Luke chapter 2 reminds us how two individuals, Simeon and Anna, by faith, did not allow their present circumstances to define who they were. These present their present temporal situation, which at first glance may have them marginalized or isolated. Rather, we'll see that with eyes of faith individually, they were not looking at themselves and their situation, but at the salvation of this Messiah, God's anointed one, at his first advent. As we in this room look forward to his second advent, when he will return and restore broken relationships with him and with each other and with the whole cosmos once and for all. So as we look at Luke chapter 2, I'd like to view it from three different perspectives. First, is how the gospel welcomes the outcast, overlooked, and isolated. 
Second, how the world and non-biblical systems lament or often reject the outcast, the overlooked, and the isolated. And third, how the coming of Jesus gives true welcome, relationship, and acceptance. So again, the gospel welcomes the outcast. Non-biblical systems often reject the outcast. But how Jesus gives true worship, or gives true welcome, relationship, and acceptance. So first of all, the gospel welcomes the outcast and the isolated. It's striking how the good news of this advent, the salvation that God gives, challenged the presuppositions and beliefs of contemporary cultural norms, then and now. I can put it this way. God's ways are not our ways. That God does things differently. Look at who God chooses in the book of Luke to hear the good news. So if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, we see Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist. They were barren. They lived in a culture where that if you did not have children, at least one child, which they did not have, you were, in the words of Elizabeth herself in chapter 1, verse 25, disgrace. And yet, she has said that God has removed her disgrace because the barren, the outcast, the outsider is now going to have a child and going to have a son. In chapter 2 of Luke, uh, the angels come to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds, as you may recall, were the lowest level of society of that day. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. And yet, this wonderful news of salvation that they announced was not to the culturally elite. It wasn't to the trending. It wasn't to the popular. It was to the shepherds. And they were honored by the announcement of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, verse 24, that we read immediately before our passage, that they, uh, Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to fulfill the Levitical law. And Leviticus chapter 12 talks about when you make this sacrifice, a lamb was required. But there was an exception made. There was an exception made for those who were very poor who could not afford a lamb, which is what Mary and Joseph give here, the turtle doves or the pigeons, which were much more common and much more economical. And yet these, this, this poor couple was given the honor of raising the God-man, Jesus Christ. So whom did this message come? To the outcast, to the poor, to the marginalized. And I would say people like you and me. Because this was not just a physical or temporal or clothing matter. This was actually to those who are spiritually poor. God has always reached out to those who can uh, look past their immediate surroundings and look with eyes of faith to the one who gives salvation. If I can put it this way, they didn't focus on the horizontal surrounding them, the, the things that they could see and experience, but they focused on God and his message. So let's look at these two characters that are in our text before us. First, there's Simeon. Just a, a couple of observations. I, I don't think it's coincidental that his name is from the Hebrew verb to hear, that God has heard. Uh, God has heard the cry of his people throughout the centuries of how long, O oh Lord, when is this Messiah going to come? But Simeon also listens to the Holy Spirit. He is told by the Holy Spirit to come to the temple because this Messiah has come. Verse 25 tells us that he was righteous and devout. He was actively following God's commands. 
To use the words of A.W. Tozer, he was one who followed hard after God. Second, also in verse 25, Luke tells us that he was waiting, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was not waiting passively, biding his time, but was actively and intently looking towards the time when God's fulfillment in the Messiah, the promised one, would come and restore the broken relationships that we suffer daily. Third, he was probably advanced in years. Now, we're not told his exact age, and the age is not really important. It's more of pointing to his life situation, that in those days, there were no social programs for those who were having difficulty in life. There were no, apparently no family members for him. So it talks about, it mentions kind of uh, inherently his difficulty of life in this world. And yet that's not what he focused on. He basically looks at this child, in verse 26 it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now, in verse 29, now that he has seen this Messiah, he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, what may seem odd to us, and maybe it seemed odd to Mary and Joseph as well, and this is not something we duplicate today, uh, he basically takes Jesus in his arms, and he acts like a figure who many years I thought that he was a priest. He's not. He just shows up. He's more like a prophet who makes this pronouncement because he is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. And after making this prophetic announcement, he leaves, he departs, and he's never heard from again. It's kind of those stories we go, what, what just happened? But this unlikely figure, this unlikely person is one who announces that the Messiah has come. The second figure, Anna, has even less to go on. If you look in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, it says this. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna is probably even more on the margins of her society than Simeon. Life for a first century widow was very difficult. As we read from the text, she was married for seven years, and it was common for young women at that age to be married by about the age of 14, give or take a couple years. So 14 is just a guesstimate. So if she had been living there, she had been in the state of a widow for 70 years. But what did she do with her apparent isolation? And we can look at this and say, how sad. She devoted herself not at looking at her present situation or the struggles of not having an immediately, immediate family or any children to take care of her, being 80 years old. She rather devoted her time by looking at God. Now, these terms in here, the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher, seems to be Luke's way of saying something similar to what he said of Simeon, that she was devout, that she was devout in pursuing God because she could trace her lineage to be a true Israelite. In Luke's way of communicating this, she is, again, following hard after God. So are they significant? 
Why are they mentioned here? Why would Luke even record such a seemingly random event from these people that seem sort of irrelevant? Why would the God of the universe use such seemingly insignificant people from the margins of society? Well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that it is always proclaimed to the outcast, the overlooked, and the isolated. While they seem to be two unrelated, isolated characters, they are united in their expectation of the fulfillment of this deliverer, this redeemer. This Messiah, which is from the Old Testament of anointed one, set apart by God to give deliverance and salvation. They saw the work of the God of the universe, God the Father preparing and providing this salvation. They both marveled at and welcomed Jesus Christ, who would accomplish the salvation long promised. Simeon explicitly, and I would say Anna implicitly, recognized this salvation by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. So we see these two examples of two people who are fixated on the true God's redemption, not on their immediate circumstances. But what about us? Can we say the same thing? Are we not often given to looking at our circumstances, of focusing on the horizontal level with our eyes, and not the vertical relationship with God? The Apostle Paul mentions this use of God's use of the outcast and the overlooked, maybe perhaps societally or physically, but not spiritually in this way. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God in his wisdom made salvation so that in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, no one can boast. Because if it weren't for boasting, I don't think social media would exist. Look at what I did today. Hey, I like that post. I think fortunately we've moved past the I had a great cup of coffee this morning, but maybe you're still there. I don't know. We like to boast. We like to put ourselves forward. And yet that's not the way that God works. In his second letter, Paul will make this bold statement. For when I am weak, I am strong. And we look at that and say, oh, that's a nice little plaque to hang over your door. Uh, That's a nice little thing, but I don't think that's true. Well, it is true that the Christian life is for those who see themselves as spiritually weak and dependent upon God. You see, it's an elderly prophet who publicly proclaims this weakness of a baby who would bring salvation. It is a solitary, societal, isolated woman who's alone, who publicly testifies that the long-awaited consolation of the people of God has come. If it sounds a little odd, it's because when we read this, it seems to go against our natural, earthly perspective. If you think about it this way, the one ruler and person of influence that found out about Jesus' birth tried to kill him. So there are times in our life when we say things like, Jesus loves me, but we end it with a question mark. And I dare say in the last few years, we may have done that. Jesus loves me? Do we think of past guilt, fear, weakness? Or do we end it with an exclamation point? Jesus loves me because in my weakness, in my lowliness, I am strong. 
You see, for us today, this is part of the reason why we as followers, I would say, in the last few weeks or months or years, have felt out of place. It should not be like the world, which has this refrain of returning back to normal, whatever that means. We have a sign in our house, and I love it. It says, normal is only a setting on the dryer. (laughs) So normal could look like so many different things. But rather, our hope is to be reminded on a daily basis that this present age is not our home. Like Anna and Simeon, we should fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. How God is using even these trying situations to draw our spiritual eyes to him. So, first of all, the gospel welcomes the outcast, the overlooked, the isolated. Secondly, the world around us often puts aside and doesn't know what to do with people who are in this position. I think this can be demonstrated by asking a very simple question. What makes for a fulfilling life? I would contend that whatever answer we may give, no matter how spiritual they may sound, they probably do not look like the situation of Anna or Simeon. We are bombarded on a daily basis with suggestions of what it might look like to have a successful life or to look a certain way, especially during these times of uncertainty. So just one modern example that I would like us to consider, and again, many more could be given. However, I think it is a spot-on example, a foil, a contrast to the characters of Simeon and Anna. And that are the fictional, they are the fictional characters, Father Mackenzie and Eleanor Rigby. If you don't recognize the names, it's all right. They were used in a Beatles song from 1966 off of the album Yellow Submarine. Now, please don't understand, misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the, the Beatles are bad, okay? Um, I actually personally like uh, when I'm 64 because I'm getting closer there every day. Um, in fact, I would contend that this song, Eleanor Rigby, gives us an insight into how the world, non-Christians, glimpse the way modern, many modern men and women in 2021 view the lonely the marginalized and seemingly unlovely people as they look at others or even as they look at themselves. So the chorus of this song says it all, and I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to leave that for Liam. Um, All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Eleanor Rigby, the title character, is portrayed as one who does not have a life. Because she has no horizontal relationships, she has no romantic interests, and therefore she has no value. She's portrayed as isolated, sad, and lonely. Does that sound like Anna? It does. But how did the prophetess Anna respond? How did she respond to her life of being a widow for 70 years? She spent all of her time at the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying continually, and finding joy and satisfaction in doing so. Father Mackenzie, who is also in the song, is portrayed as a lonely priest of the church who writes words to a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. Now, as a preacher, that is a very sad thought. However, Simeon, a prophet given the word of God, proclaims it loudly and tells others about this child that was born. You see, this song ends in despair. Father Mackenzie is pictured at the end, presiding over Eleanor Rigby's funeral that nobody comes to. 
So in contrast with the salvation and hope and good news given in Luke chapter 1 and 2, this song has no hope. It has no redemption. There is no value expressed for these two characters because they are alone, isolated, seemingly unloved, relational outcasts of society. If I can put it this way, this song, and many people today, focus only on the horizontal relationship level. And that will never be addressed until we fix the the vertical relationship with God. You see, those who refuse the message of Jesus collectively referred to as the world and other systems that do not include God cannot fathom the acceptance, love, and welcome of Jesus. This message can only be received for longing for and, and looking for hope outside of ourselves turning from ourselves, entrusting in the complete work of this baby, Jesus Christ, as he would grow, as he would die on the cross, as he would be crucified, as he would be in the tomb for three days, and as he rose and he conquered the grave. But what does this look like? Yeah, the gospel welcomes the outcast. The world cannot accept the outcast. And so I'd like to look finally at what Simeon says. Third, that the coming to Jesus gives true welcome relationship, and acceptance. Look at what Simeon says in Luke chapter 2, verse 30. And I'm going to follow this by three poignant questions. That's what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So my first question from these verses is, Jesus is the word of salvation. Will you trust him? You see, there's echoes in our passage today from the Old Testament where it was, um, especially Isaiah, when he talks of the suffering servant who would come. Not to come in glory to rule at this stage, but to be born to the lowly, to redeem the spiritually lowly. This is what Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10 says. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Well, what is this salvation? Well, Mary says something similar in chapter 1, verse 51 of Luke. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Zacharias, in chapter 1, verse 77, declares the Father's work of salvation through Jesus is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of of their sins. That is where the remedy is. That is the salvation of God. You see, God's salvation deals with our most fundamental problem, relational separation from God because of me and my sin. To bring this back to the initial two biblical realities of the human condition, our relational separation from God is so much more serious than any broken human relationship. And until we fix the vertical relationship with God, we can try whatever program, whatever educational tool, whatever political movement, whatever societal change, whatever well-intended process to fix the human condition. 
and it will never bring true lasting change. It is merely horizontal. You see, Simeon's prophecy reminds us that it is this salvation for all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody who is not Jewish, is now going to see this salvation. And for the glory of the people of Israel, those who were of Abraham and of the Jewish people, that together God will demonstrate his glory. You see, rather than pursuing pursuing other gods or other man-made solutions, or focusing on my current conditions during a pandemic. The good news of Jesus that penetrates our hearts calls for you and for me to admit that we do not have all the answers. Nor can we ever be good enough to work our way back to God, but by faith, humbly receive this offer of deliverance from ourselves and from our sin. Will you trust in this Jesus who was put to death For our offenses, but was raised to life so that we can spiritually live? The second question is this The work of Jesus is life changing. Will you allow God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit to challenge you so intimately that the thoughts of your hearts are revealed? That's what Simeon says Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary is given this this word of warning that even though he will be the Messiah, that there will be times of pain for her because of what he will have to endure for the world, for salvation. But it's not for her alone. And think about this, in our world today, whenever the good news of Jesus, this word of salvation, this word of hope is proclaimed, it will always face opposition. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Uh, contrasting those who receive salvation, those who reject. For the good news of the gospel of salvation is the fragrance, the aroma of life. But to those who reject, it is the fragrance of death. One of the hardest things to reconcile, I would say, in the past 18 months has been the conflict between my personal satisfaction, what I would do if I were God, which is a really crazy idea because it would never end well, and contrasted with what we find in Scripture that the triune God has ordained whatsoever has come to pass. Do we trust that? You see, I would say in this period of history, our hearts have been revealed. Our hearts have been shaken. Our hearts have been challenged. What have we been valuing and worshiping? Now, I know for those of you who are Christians, I worship God. But on a practical, daily level, what are we trusting in? What are we believing? If I can put this in biblical terms... I would say that the past few years for us have been a time of lament. It's a spiritual lament. Maybe for the first time, this is the first time in history that we've had a prolonged time of lament. And what is that? Well, lament is saying, God, things are hard. Things are not right. Things are not how they should be. See, we are given this opportunity in Scripture And in our pursuit of God to ask these questions. In the midst of this lament, are we fixing our eyes on the consolation of Israel? 
or on my present situation and my present needs. Uh, I was struck today when we were reading the responsive reading today in Psalm in our order of worship. And I know sometimes we may ask, why do we do this? Why do we have the same stuff every week and we sing the same songs? Well, it was amazing today. I, I encourage you to take your bulletin home and meditate on that psalm. Because it's short, but it's a lament. And it's the psalmist saying, God, things are not right. But these cries for God to intervene because he is able and many times he is faithful. In fact, all the time he is faithful as his people rely on his power. Now, God does not always give us the answer we want, but the psalmist almost always comes back around to say, you are God, you are in control. I'm looking at my present situation, but I will turn my eyes to you. In Psalm 42 and 43, they have a chorus and a refrain of their own where the psalmist say repeatedly three times, why are you downcast within my soul? Why are you such within turmoil within me, talking to himself? And this is what he tells himself, hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him. My salvation, there's that word again, and my God. You see, like Simeon and Anna, the psalmist and the people of God always turn their attention back to God, despite what we can see with our eyes. See, what happens when the thoughts of our hearts are revealed? And that is a very scary thought, by the way. Well, the salvation declared by Simeon and Anna will not allow us to persist in our own ways. But by his light and his truth, the Holy Spirit exposes the sin in our hearts, turning back and beholding his face again, calling us to reorder our lives so that we look to him and rely on him completely. I like to put it this way. God always accepts us where we are in our sin, but he is not content to leave us there. He wants to move us on in sanctification and growing more and more like him in the struggles of everyday life. You see, the way of Jesus is hard. It is countercultural. It goes against my natural desires and my wants, but it gives life abundantly and more joyful than we can have in this life and that we could otherwise not know. Third question. The way of Jesus is to have our eyes fixed on him and not on ourselves, that we are to represent him and to not live in fear in the midst of these uncertain times. Even in the difficulties of 2021 as we enter 2022 in a few weeks, will you follow him? I'll close with a story from church history about what living this great salvation might look like in a time of pandemic. From around 250 AD until 270 AD, there was an event that even secular scholars and historians call the Plague of Cyprian. No, Cyprian did not start the plague, but as a bishop in Carthage, representing Christ to his congregation in North Africa, He was one of the earliest Christian leaders to address how Christians should respond to a disease that at one time at its height was reportedly killing as many as 5,000 people per day in Rome. And I would add there's another book called The Rise of Christianity. Uh, And basically in there, he says one of the things that why the early church grew so much 
is because it was the Christians who went back into Rome while the rich were fleeing the plague. The Christians went back in and ministered in the name of Jesus. And that helps us understand why Cyprian wrote what he did. This is what he said. We should now and always reflect that we have renounced the world and are in the meantime living here as guests and strangers. Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his home, which snatches us hence and sets free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. May God behold this our eager desire. May the Lord Christ look upon this purpose of our mind and faith. He who will give the larger rewards of his glory to those whose desires, in respect of God himself, were greater than that of the world. What could cause someone to have such confidence? Well, it's not irrational martyrdom, but it's spoken by one who has grasped that the great salvation of Jesus Christ transcends what we see around us in the moment. May we renounce the fleeting pleasures of the world so that with eyes of faith, much like Simeon and Anna seeing the baby Jesus, we may rejoice on the day he returns and takes us to our true home. And one word about heaven. The Bible doesn't give us as much details about heaven as we would like. There's a lot of um, theories out there. But what I can say definitively about heaven is this. We will be like Anna, worshiping day and night, and like Simeon, declaring praise forever and ever, and we will be loving every moment of it. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, that you have called us the weak, the spiritually broken, the spiritually needy, to come and to taste and to see that you are indeed good. As your word and the work of your Holy Spirit pierces our hearts, would it, like a surgeon's scalpel, cut away the deadness of this world, the desires of the flesh, so that we may be made more alive in you. For your glory and in your name we pray. Amen.